Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we will look at verses 12 through 17 together this morning. And I'd like to, again, encourage you to put your eyes on God's word and open up your ears to hear it as I read it out loud. 1 Timothy 1, starting at verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's hard to come to this passage and try to write a sermon because Paul, in in the end there, in that last verse, verse 17, if you noticed, stops his sermon and gives a sort of, it gives a doxology that is sort of a benediction, sort of like a closing thought. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, in one sense, this is, again, as pastors like to say, we could almost just go home on that. Our theme from this passage is overflowing grace. And that is helpful to us, most importantly, because it is coming to us from God's word. But it's also helpful to us as a church as we're thinking about this theme of grace for the year of 2024. As I thought about overflowing grace, I was often reminded of Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's one of those places that you probably ought to go see with your own eyes. It's pretty remarkable. Um, But like many remarkable things in my life, I find really good ways to mess them up. So when Sarah and I went to Niagara Falls, and and I'm not saying this to the detriment of my wife, she is not the early riser. I'm the early riser, okay? But in this instance, she insisted that we get up early to see the sunrise over Niagara Falls, naturally. Naturally. And she was very motivated to do so. And I was not. And there's a very stupid reason for why I wasn't. It wasn't because I was unwilling to get up at that time. It was because I had no idea where I was going to park. When I got into Canada, I realized that this is not the Maple Leaf State. This is a different country. They speak a different language. There's far too many tourist traps. Um, The money's different. I mean, it just... I'd never felt so patriotic before in my life than when I was in Canada. And so naturally, as we, as we got in and we started talking about tomorrow, let's get up and see the sunrise over Niagara Falls. I go, tomorrow can we go home? Can we go back to the good old U.S. of A.? 
we got up, we drove out there in anticipation, and the sun started rising, and I'm looking for a parking space, and I go, I'm going to have to just park in this hotel, and we're going to have to walk briskly to get to a good spot to see the sunrise. And as I pulled in and I parked my car, I parked it right in front of a sign that said, parking for hotel users only. And this was not our hotel. And that filled me with such dread that I could not comprehend the beauty that I assume is in a sunrise over Niagara Falls. My wife got it, but that was probably because she wasn't worried about paying the ticket. And we didn't get a ticket. That's probably the worst part of the story, because even if we did get a ticket, I could at least say, aha, see, it wasn't worth it. But it was because, you know, we, we stole a parking spot for 15 minutes or something. But I was unable to grasp the glory of something in nature because I was worried about something that was far less significant. Again, with this idea of overflowing grace, my mind went on to Niagara Falls and thinking about, like, that thing's running right now, you know? It's still going, like, full force. It's, It's quite an amazing sight. And to see the sunrise over it, I mean, it just enhanced it all the more comes to the grace of the Lord, I think we might be like those people who are unfortunate enough to live near Niagara Falls. And I say unfortunate because they don't get to wake up every morning and go look at it for an hour and go, this is a pretty amazing thing. But there's a bit of an unfortunate thing in that they have to drive by that wonder of the world and kind of forget about it because they have to go to work still and they have to do their laundry and they have to go about all the normal things of life while there's this amazing, overflowing wonder right outside their door. It'd kind of be like living next to your favorite restaurant in one sense too, right? Or next to, I don't know, something that you find very exciting. We, we all want to do that, but then there's, there's a missing of that because of familiarity. And that's, that's a problem that we have in humanity. Familiarity diminishes glory. It diminishes wonder. And when we take a word like grace and we just kind of say it, we just throw it around and, and we even read it from God's perfect, inerrant word, it could become like living next to Niagara Falls. Or it can be one of those things where we're so preoccupied by something as silly as a parking ticket that we don't catch the wonder of it. So my hope is in this time, that we would see in Paul's words, which are in this case the words of the Holy Spirit, that we would see the wonder of overflowing grace. And we talked in 1 Timothy so far about the main goal of Paul to encourage Timothy to correct false teaching so that sound or healthy doctrine or healthy teaching about God would be what's going on in the churches in Ephesus. That's Paul's main goal. And last week we saw him urging Timothy to continue on to that goal, to making sure that whatever is being taught are things that accord with the glorious gospel of Christ, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, and the things that are in accordance with sound doctrine, with healthy teaching. We talked about how important that truly is. 
and how important it is for you. Though I, I could say from my experience that all week long, I need to be thinking, is this teaching going to be sound? But then the week after that, you all have to decide if this teaching is sound and hold me accountable to it as well. From that, Paul, in recognizing that some of these false teachers were using the word of God wrongly, or even particularly he talked about the law, the commandments of God in verses 8 through 11. And he said that there is a good and lawful way to use the law, but these teachers are not doing that. He said that the law wasn't given for the righteous, but for this long list of sinners. In verse 8, he said, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's what the law is for. The law is for people who sin, and guess who that is? Everybody. And in that last passage that includes that long list of actions that are opposite to sound doctrine, that are contrary to the gospel of the glorious God, it would be very easy for someone writing this to go and say, now I want to talk about myself. Now that you understand how everyone else is so messed up, let me say something about me. And Paul doesn't actually put himself in contrast to those people, but because he believes this glorious gospel, he puts himself in the midst of this list. But because he has grown in the grace, he's grown in the gospel, he actually doesn't leave himself in the middle of that list, but he puts himself at the foremost. He puts himself as the one among all of those terrible things in that list who belongs at the top. And that's peculiar, isn't it? It was very strange that Paul would do that. But he's teaching what? Sound doctrine. So, before I go on, let me give you the outline for this morning. It should be printed in your bulletin. It is, in fact, printed in your bulletin because I know the person who prints the bulletins. And that is there. But we're going to look at grace overflowing for the people of the king, then grace overflowing for the purpose of the king, and then lastly, grace overflowing for the patience of the king. So if you follow along in your Bibles, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 14, 15 and 16, and then verse 17. Okay. So again, Paul does not become like the child who, when they see their sibling do something wrong, immediately darts off to mom and says, guess what my sister did? She is a lawless, unholy, profane, disobedient, ungodly sinner. Paul doesn't do that and then say, now on the other hand, here's me. Instead, he says, I'm the worst. I'm the foremost of all these sinners. He says, at first, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He's given me strength. For what purpose? Because he's appointed me to service. Well, then why has he appointed you to service, Paul? He's appointed me to service because he judged me faithful. Okay, well, you know, maybe he is kind of sounding like that kid that's, you know, saying, look at what my sister did, but look at who I am. But it's the next verse in verse 13 that helps us immensely in understanding Paul's heart. He says, Christ appointed me to this service to be an apostle, a messenger for Christ. He strengthened me to that cause because he judged me faithful. 
What does that faithfulness mean? It means that I used to be a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. That's what faithfulness looks like, Paul? No, of course not. He judged Paul faithful because he strengthened Paul with grace, with an overflow of unearned merit, undeserved favor. See, Paul isn't someone to whom Jesus looked and thought, I really could use a guy like Paul on my team. God doesn't think in the way we do on the playground when we're picking teams for kickball and we pick the tallest kid who could probably kick that ball all the way to the other side of the parking lot. In Paul, Jesus sees someone in whom he can put his strength. He sees someone in whom he can give grace. And that's not anything special about Paul. See, Paul used to be a Pharisee. He was a very spiritual and honorable person in the eyes of the people around him. But he was also something else because he was that. Do you remember what Paul was doing before he was converted to Christ? Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9 that Saul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. I love Luke's language in this. Because, of course, when he says breathing threats and murders, he's talking about the words he was using. He was saying, I'm going to go, I'm going to arrest all the Christians I possibly can. These people who are perverting God's word and messing everything up, I'm going to do whatever I can to stop them. I'm going to testify against them in court. I'm going to accuse them. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. But in that as well, there's this idea that the very breath breathed by Paul is a breath of blasphemy and of persecution and of opposition to God, not only to his church. So Luke says, Saul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is anyone in the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul's very breath stank with words that tried to permanently silence the preaching of overflowing grace in Christ. He had been appointed to the service even though he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He didn't have faithfulness on his own. See, the strength that God gave Paul for the task and the faithfulness that he judged Paul in was all in Christ. It was the faithfulness of Christ. It was the strength of Christ. And God gives that to his servants so that there's nothing that he can commend or say, well, I did it with a little help from my friend named Paul. Now, Paul freely says, I have brought nothing to this. All that I've brought has been the opposite of the cause that I am now being used to advance. That's the mystery of grace. He received mercy, Paul says. Now, grace and mercy, we've been talking about this, and if you're in Sunday school, we've been talking about it too. Grace is getting a good thing that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting the judgment that you deserve. And Paul says, I received mercy in contrast to blaspheming and persecuting and my opposition. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's testimony here this is his testimony. This is his story about why he is where he is. And y'all have a testimony too about why you are where you are. Paul was determined and 
explicit about grace in his testimony. And that everything that he had, everything that he accomplished was by Christ alone and the overflow of grace that came to him through Christ's work on the cross. Now there's a unique word that's used here that we translate as overflow. And it is hyperpleonason, pleonasu. Right? I knew I was going to mess it up. I worked on it all week long. Come on, Greek. But what's cool about this word is that it's a compound of two Greek words. The first word means over and beyond, and the second word means superabound. <laughs> okay? So, I mean, Paul is kind of, he's going to great lengths to understand and to communicate grace. So far as to use this compound word again that means over and beyond and to superabound. So if we combine it together in English, he says that the grace of Christ superabounded to me over and beyond my own life and my old life. And that's pretty amazing. The flood of Christ's grace was able to wash completely away the blasphemy, the persecution, and all of that before. And don't we hold on to those things? Don't we hold on to the things that grace is meant to wash away? Paul knew that if there was anything good in his life, it was by grace. And he also knew equally that the things that were not good, which was the whole of his life before Christ, was equally washed away by the same grace. So to put it in our human understanding, we could say that if grace between people is like a leaky faucet, grace from Christ to humanity and grace from Christ to you individually, it's Niagara Falls. Paul's testimony speaks through the megaphone of grace to us this morning. So I wonder if you're listening through that megaphone. Because I guarantee you, no matter what's going on in your life, wherever you are in your relationship with God, you need grace. And you don't just need a trickle of it. You need an overflow of it. I'm not saying that because I know anything about any one of you. I'm saying it because Paul who, yeah, he was an insolent opponent. Yeah, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor, but now we look to him when we go, the Apostle Paul. And if he needed this kind of grace, so do we. What we need is grace, a super abounding over and beyond portion of grace. And grace overflows to the people of the king. So let's see how grace overflows for the purpose of the king in verses 15 and 16. Why overflow? Why the mercy? Well, look down at verse 15 again, if you would, with me, please. Paul moves away from his testimony just for a moment. He's going to come right back to it in this very verse. But he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What we get as far as qualifications for receiving grace is a saying that Paul utilizes in verse 15. And we don't know exactly where the saying came from. He calls it a saying. He says, what is being said amongst Christians in the first century is true. Christ came into the world to save sinners. It may have been a line in an early church hymn. It may have been the beginnings of a creed or a statement of faith. 
But whatever it was, Paul takes that thing that would have been familiar to the church and he reminds them, you know how you all have been saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? That is a trustworthy statement. It means you can rely on it. It's deserving of full acceptance. And church, this is where we have another important point to make. That it is worthy of full acceptance, not full acknowledgement. Acknowledgement is not enough when it comes to the matter of grace, when it comes to the matter of what Christ Jesus came to do, because he came to save sinners. Christian preaching and gospel teaching and sound doctrine and everything that we do requires the message of our need for grace. And that need is rooted in what theologians call our total depravity because of our sin. That is, not that we needed helped along the way perhaps a wounded soldier may rest his arm on a fellow soldier as he limps across the battlefield to safety. Our total depravity means that Jesus had to cross enemy lines, find us, and carry our limp corpse back to safety. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, not help sinners. Not to be a crutch, not to be a leg up and to get us right on the back, back on the right path so that we can please God, but rather to save us because there was nothing good in us apart from his grace. Again, Paul has gone beyond adding himself into the rank of the sinners listed in our passage last week. He's gone beyond by just simply, not, not simply putting himself in that list, but putting himself at the top of the list. He calls himself the foremost, the one who sets the bar for what a sinner is. He would say that if you want to know what a sinner really is, come look at my life. And this is a tricky thing because I've, I've been even, you know, accused in some ways. Oh, accused, oh no. What a bad word for 2024, my poor heart. I've, I've even been accused that in calling us sinners today, we are missing what we are in Christ. But when we look at God's word and we see Paul has not said, among whom I was the foremost of sinners. He says, I am the foremost of sinners. Now, obviously, let's make the delineation here to say that Paul is not saying, I'm just as bad as I ever was. Or I'm still far worse than all those people who don't know Christ. That's not what he's saying. What he's recognizing is, is that the ability to sin still resides in his heart. And the sin that he committed, though he has been forgiven, though it's been washed clean, it has stayed with him. And that's not really a message that we'd like to hear as a church, would we? We'd like to hear that when our sins are forgiven, we can just completely forget about them and there's no consequences whatsoever. Well, we can acknowledge that when we sin against somebody, it's the same thing as committing a crime. You can go to court and confess, yes, judge, I did the wrong thing, but I'm very sorry and I'm a Christian after all, so I believe you should forgive me. The judge may say, I'm really glad you're sorry. I'm really glad you see what was wrong with what you did. You're still going to jail, right? There's still consequences for what we do. Why is that? Why is it that God doesn't just say, hey, since you've repented, I'm going to wash away all the effects of your sin? I think it's because we ought to be reminded and just like those who might live next to Niagara Falls might get used to Niagara Falls, we get used to the grace of God. Why is it he doesn't just transform us in an instant into a perfect, spotless saint? It may be because he sees our need to be reminded of our need for grace daily. 
to rely on him, no longer on ourselves as we did prior to knowing Christ. Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners. He's the one who sets the bar. If you wonder what a sinner is, Paul would say, here I am. We saw already what he used to be in verse 13, but I think that John Stott will help us understand Paul's motivation in, in, grapple, in grappling with this state as, as remaining the foremost of all sinners. So John Stott was the, the rector at All Souls Church in London, and he says about this passage that when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. That is, comparing ourselves to others. Saying, you know, I'm really not that bad of a sinner because I can find someone else who's done something far worse. So God might be disappointed with me, but not nearly as he is with that other guy. Says Stott, we give up those comparisons because Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he couldn't imagine how anyone else could be worse. I wonder in your Christian life, how aware are you of your sin? How broken are you by your sin? Because without that brokenness, we don't understand grace. We don't understand the way God's grace has overflown in our lives, has been a super abounding over and beyond kind of grace. So let's move on to verse 16 to connect this idea of the purpose of the king and overflowing grace. Because Paul received mercy, though he considered himself perhaps the least worthy of mercy. And that's where the overflow of grace in our gospel understanding is so important. Because mercy is not given to the one who deserves it. In fact, it's impossible to earn mercy. Because its twin is grace. As Paul says in verse 16, the purpose of this superabounding over and beyond portion of grace is so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience in us. And that perfect patience in your life in Christ becomes an example to the world around you. That isn't to say that your whole evangelistic strategy and testifying mode should be to come and say, let me tell you about how terrible I am and nothing else but to confess and acknowledge in a world where we are being told that nothing we do is wrong as long as we think it's right. For us to stand up and say, I'm the foremost of all sinners. So we can agree with Paul on this. We don't look at it and we go, yeah, Paul does seem pretty bad now that you mention it. Paul's purpose is a teaching purpose. And that teaching is for us to recognize that when I really see the depth of my sin, how could I imagine anyone being worse than me? And in that, the grace of God's perfect patience is highlighted. How patient has God been with you? How patient has he been with you this last month or this last week or even these last couple hours of the day? This is what Paul sees in his expression of his need for grace. He sees an opportunity to display the patience of Christ to those who would come to believe. What drove Paul to call himself the first among sinners, or the picture in the dictionary next to the word sinner, is because in the overflow of grace, he realized the perfect patience of Christ. That became his testimony. Dear church, when we receive Christ's overflowing grace, our need for it will drown any sense of pride in comparing ourselves to others. We need that desperately because it's so easy to do it. It's so easy to compare ourselves to others. Because who among us doesn't want to know how we're doing? 
You want to know how you're doing at your job. You want to know how you're doing at home. You want to know how you're doing before the Lord. And if I want to know if I'm being a good father, I might look at other fathers. If I want to know if I'm being a good pastor, I might look at other pastors. God calls us to look at Christ and find in him the fact that there is no sin, that there is no faltering in Jesus Christ. And in that same sinless person is a perfect patience that I need. We need to be reminded of that. We need to see that in his overflowing grace and let that mark our life, our conversation, our motivation. God's overflowing grace shows his perfect patience in our lives. And if so, then grace will overflow in our last section to the praise of the king. Look at verse 17. I love verse 17. It's probably my favorite part of this passage. Because here, Paul, who is teaching about grace and teaching through his testimony, just stops for a moment You can almost imagine him breaking out in song if this was a song. To the king of the ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I like to think about Paul. I don't know whether he did this or not, but I know he was a human. I like to imagine that as Paul is writing this, that he writes out that beautiful benediction, that beautiful doxology, that expression of praise to God, and then kind of like closes his book for a second. He goes, oh, I'm not done yet. Hold on. And then writes the rest of the letter. But in one sense, in in that standing under the overflow, the waterfall of grace, we can't but praise the king of that grace. He can't help himself. And neither should we. This isn't an act of emotionalism. It's sound doctrine. He's not motivated by saying, oh, you know, I just kind of want to, I just want to get that feeling that I really want to get from the songs or from the sermon or from this. He's He's looking at the truth of what God has done in his life, and he cannot but overflow in worship. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we've seen, you see the the boats that drive under Niagara Falls, and you see how everyone's wearing a poncho, right? No no smart person isn't wearing a poncho, because they know what's going to happen. You can't even get close to the falls without at least having some of the mist come on you, right? And if you're going to drive, if you're going to drive your boat, if you're going to take the boat ride closer to the falls, as close as you possibly can, because you want to experience as much of it as you possibly can, I mean, the boat is going to be enveloped in that water. And as we come close to God's word, we are coming to something far more powerful than Niagara Falls. We're coming to the message of Christ's salvation for lost sinners. And it should prompt us to worship. What else is significant about Paul's little outburst of praise, if we can call it that? Well, it's certainly the culmination of God's mission in Christ to the world. Jesus Christ came to save sinners by pouring out an overflow of grace and to make them worshipers. See, our end goal is not to say how many conversions, how many baptisms, how many people attended. No, our end goal in gospel ministry is to see God make worshipers out of people to bring them to this place of an overflow of praise for the overflow of grace in their lives. There's another significance that should provide us with an immediate sense of benefit wherever we find ourselves today. Because declaring praise, honor, and glory to Christ has a reassuring effect on the believer. Consider again what Paul is trying to accomplish. Because he wants Timothy to correct the false teachers who threaten to do massive damage to the church. 
In 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul mentioned all these things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Um, he includes arrests and beatings. He was left for dead. He experienced two shipwrecks. He mentions dangerous rivers and robbers and the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he says at the end, not to mention the daily pressures on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That was something that marked Paul's life as a pastor, as a missionary, as a church leader. He had daily anxiety for the churches. He had a care that the churches would be kept in sound doctrine and kept on mission and kept in good fellowship. How do you think Paul survived so many times of the shipwreck and all those things? And then on top of that, the anxiety of the church. What did he do when he and Silas were in the Philippian jail? When they could have said, man, this is a real, real hang-up for us. They sang. But they didn't sing because the doors were opened. Because that happened after the earthquake that came from their singing. Even in a cold, dark, wet dungeon, Paul was able to find a satisfaction in the glory and the grace of Christ that overflowed to praise and worship. So where are you today? Are you in something of a dungeon in your life? The prescription that God's word brings for you this morning is to think on and sit under the waterfall of God's overflowing grace, to let it abound, super abound, over and beyond your life. And we call this doxology, a response of praise and adoration to the God of all grace, because it's the overflow from the heart that has come under the overflow of grace. So do you struggle to put doxology into your life. I'm not just talking about when you sing on Sunday. I'm talking about as you go through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Is there a struggle to get to that place of doxology, to get get to that place of praise? Because it is almost certainly a need for you to step under his overflowing grace again. When I come to the place of singing, really any aspect on Sunday morning or any, any part of my Christian life during the week, rolling out of bed and trying to get to God's word to start off my day right, it takes an overflow of grace. When I'm facing trials with my kids or with my neighbors or just reading the news about what's going on in the world, I need an overflow of grace. Do you need that overflow? The message of the cross is the message of grace. Christ came to save sinners And how he did that was by taking the place of sinners, by switching us out, as it were. Um, Martin Luther called it the great exchange. From the blessed place of where Christ sat in the presence of his father, he went to a cross so that we might sit in heavenly places, Paul says, so that we might be where Christ was and where Christ now is because post his death, he is resurrected. He is alive again. And he has gone to prepare a place for us where we may sit under the waterfall of his grace with no interruption, with no distractions, with no wanderings of our own hearts. Not only did God's patience extend as we sinned, but it extends to the point where Jesus comes and takes the place of the sinner. So if your life is in Christ, it is a life of overflowing grace. It's a life that displays the patience of Christ. Because Paul didn't call himself the foremost sinner because he kept on sinning. This overflowing grace gives us increasing victory over sin. So are you struggling with sin today? Are you getting angry at the drop of a hat? Are you feeling lack of motivation to do your best at your job? Whatever that challenge may be, sit under the waterfall of God's overflowing grace. 
Because in that, the Lord will produce holy living by his power, and it will result in praise. Let's pray. Lord, we have been forgiven much. Remind us of all that we've been forgiven. Make us like Paul, more acutely aware of our sinfulness. Not, as is according to your plan, not so that we might be left in the mud of our own ruin, but according to your plan that we might see, oh, how you have been patient with us. Oh, how he has been so good to us. As we proclaim now together in a few moments that we've been forgiven by the blood of Christ, may we embrace that afresh this morning, that we we might walk in it, and that that forgiveness might motivate us to gospel proclamation and to holy living and to the things that you set in front of us that may seem too much or, or maybe we've just had enough of it. May your grace overflow on your people this morning to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.